Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 282. Today, we are taking a different and I would say very targeted look at the very broad and widespread topic of racism and white supremacy and the many ways it manifests at work, inspired by a really interesting and important piece that we came across in the Huffington Post by C. Marie Taylor, who wrote, I'm a black woman who had to change her name to get ahead professionally. And this had never occurred to me before, even though I read and think and write a lot about race and gender at work all the time. And it turns out there's a ton of politics behind how we pronounce others' names at work, especially folks who are black and brown and have names that might not be super white and not be super familiar to white people. So I want you to check yourself for just a moment if you've recently or ever mispronounced a colleague of color's first name and felt the shame shower of embarrassment and discomfort of totally putting your foot in your mouth. You're in good company and it happens all the time. Here's the sort of revelation I had while reading this piece by C. Marie is that it's not about us. <laughs> it's not about your embarrassment. It's not about how smart or woke you might seem if you guess how to pronounce someone's name right, the most important thing is to think about how that other person feels. So I'm delighted to be sitting down with C. Marie Taylor to talk through what inspired her piece and how we all can curb this really troubling microaggression of mispronouncing people's names at work. First, a little bit about C. Marie. For more than 25 years, she's worked in service organizations and has dedicated her life's work to supporting the community. Her experience in finance, management, and program evaluation have positioned her to balance the many demands of leading high-impact organizations. She has a talent for envisioning how the work of diverse community partners can complement each other while propelling their independent work to new levels. Among her many accolades, achievements, and awards, uh, the Washington, D.C. metro area chapter of the Association of Fundraising Professionals presented her with the 2012 Outstanding Diversity Leader Award, and she was recently named one of the 2018 The Daily Record's Top 100 Women in Maryland. C. Marie Taylor, thanks so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. I am so delighted to be speaking with you. After I was first made aware of your fantastic work via the Huffington Post, where you wrote a really great editorial called I'm a Black Woman Who Had to Change Her Name to Get Ahead Professionally. What inspired that piece and and sort of how did that experience shape your perspective on name discrimination at work? I have to say the piece was quite cathartic for me. And what inspired it was uh, every now and then when I feel close enough to a colleague and they ask me what C stands for, I 
tell them. Mm. And if they're super smart, they'll ask me the story behind it. And so many of my colleagues that I really trust had asked me several times to actually write it. Mm. And as I continued on this path of consciousness for myself, particularly around the race equity field and racial justice field, I felt like I really needed to actually tell my story as a part of this work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the story of your decision to go by your first name's first initial was a strategic choice, right? It was strategic. So as I was going through the thought process in terms of even changing my name from Charnay to C. Marie or to Marie, I thought, well, God, what is the happy medium, right? right? I am giving up 20, 30 years of myself, right, for something else. And so what does that look like? How do I make peace with it? What am I giving up? I went through all these kind of maturations in my head. And so where I landed with C. Marie was, okay, as I talk about in the article, well, my white colleague and friend said, you need to use Marie. It sounds more European. This is why they're picking your, they're going to pick your name because they can understand it. There's affinity bias, right? There's all these things around it. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, if this is what I need to do to get ahead, fine. However, how can I at least keep one part of me? right in that. And so that's where I added the C. I'm like, well, they could figure out it's C.Marie. Right. And of course, they'll immediately see the Marie and maybe even the C will intrigue them. Although most people just ignore it and skip right to Marie. Mm. But it was really this kind of evolution of trying to make peace with who I am and how do I get into the rooms that I'm trying to um, change the trajectory of how Black people are treated in this company, in this world. Right. Which is a constant negotiation, it sounds like, with Oh one's God. own identity, right? And yep. the realities of our very racist and in many ways imperfect world and how to make the strategic choices that only you can make on your own behalf if it helps you get your foot in the door. I'm referencing in particular here the research that was published by the Harvard Business School back in 2016 that was a study about Resumes sent out for 1,600 entry-level job positions that were posted on job search websites in 16 metropolitan sectors of the U.S. And some of the resumes that the researchers sent out included information that clearly pointed out the applicant's minority status, while others were what they call whitened or scrubbed of racial clues. And whether it's whitening the name or other references of like, you know, extracurricular-esque activities... The whitened resumes had a significantly better chance of being called back for an interview, even though everything else about them were identical. I think I see here they wrote 25% of black candidates received callbacks from their whitened resumes, while only 10% got calls when they left ethnic details intact. And amongst Asians, it was 21% who got callbacks with their whitened resumes versus 11.5%. So double their more obviously ethnic resumes. So this shit is real, in other words, for anyone who doubts <laughs> it, right? Right, exactly. It's alive and well, and it, it's 2020, yeah. almost 2021, and it happens every single day day. It is all of the words that you can think of. It's dehumanizing. 
It is stifling. It is toxic. Mm-hmm. It is exhausting. Uh, I could go on and on, but it's all of those things, right? And mm-hmm. all I want to do is work, right? I want to give you my best self, but you don't even want me as I am, mm. right? And so the thing I talk about in this article is you want me to show up and be my best, but you don't even want to learn my damn name, <laughs> right. right? So how, what do you want from me? And then when they talk about, and I'm going on a tangent, I'll stop in a minute. That's okay. But when you think about what you want from your employees, you don't want them to be their full selves if they're black or Latin or Asian. You want them to be a nice white version. And that's not okay. And then you can't figure out why there's not innovation, why there is um, disengagement, why people turn over, why people leave, mm. because they can't be themselves. Yeah. Right? Look at COVID. If you are stuck in a box, the least I could do, right, is learn what your name is. Mm-hmm. That's the least, and learn who you are because who we are shows up at work, whether you like it or not. Right. And if you could fully embrace who you are, yeah. who your staff and team is, they would be so much more engaged. Right, right. I agree completely. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of of politics of names, of first names in the news this year, I think because of the rise of Karen, right? So I feel like some of my white folks listening might be like, well, my name's Karen. I've been discriminated against based on my name too, and that's terrible. Talk to me about how that is or is not the same as black and brown folks whose uh, colleagues don't know how to pronounce their names properly. So here's what I would say if Karen said, well, I've been discriminated against. What I would say is, Karen, you've actually just been oppressed because you're not in the white cisgender category, right? And Mm. so there's a difference between. And maybe even you've been discriminated against. Mm -hmm. It's still different than discrimination that I face. And if you stack up the chips, Mm. you're still going to get paid more than I am, Karen, Mm. even if I have two degrees or three degrees. Right. So and. And my job isn't to compare my suffering to her suffering. What I'm asking people to do is to acknowledge what is happening, right? When we talk about white privilege, it's not that there isn't discrimination within females versus males, right? What I want you to do is acknowledge the other discrimination, the dehumanization that's happening on the whole for black people, right? right? And that's the problem. We want to deflect and talk about what happened to you, Karen. Well, hold on, right, for just a minute. And let's stay proximate to the problem. Right. The problem is systematic racism. If we fix that, then Karen, you'll get your whole dollar and I'll get my whole dollar. That is the goal. I think that's a good reminder. And, you know, one of the tough choices behind changing your name is how this relates to assimilationism, if I'm saying that mm-hmm. right. I've got Ibram X. Kendi's book here, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and I just want to read just a section of where he starts to talk about assimilationist ideas, which was totally new to me as a white person who thinks she's pretty read in on like injustice and diversity and inclusion. When I first came across this, he said, quote, assimilationist ideas are racist ideas. Assimilationists can position any racial group as the superior standard that another racial group should be measuring themselves against, the benchmark they should be trying to reach. Assimilationists typically position white people as the superior standard, end quote. And so I guess it's tricky in making that personal choice to not be Charnay at work. And is that a form of assimilationism? 
is that not? You know what I mean? Like, what would you say to the young black woman who's entering the workforce post-college right now and has to decide, am I going to show up with my name, even though I know white people are not going to pronounce it properly? Or am I going to make an adaptation that's my choice? It is absolutely assimilation, mm-hmm. right? And in the article, I say, quote, now try to unpack what I've done to try to assimilate to a culture that rejects almost every part of me, mm. yet often wants to use me for my talent and skills. Yeah. Right. And so I talk about that. I made this choice and I'm all right with it. Right. right? right. But I'm calling myself out. Mm-hmm. Now, why I haven't changed is the piece I also made with it is the people who know and love and trust me. Right. And um, who I would uh, die for know what Charnay means. Right, right. Right. And in a sense, I saved Charnay for myself mm. and my protection mm-hmm. against this world. Mm-hmm. So if you can't fully value who I am, you don't get to call me Charnay. Right. So that's the piece I've made, right? That's, you call me C. Marie. That is right. my name. You're going to put respect on it and we're going to keep it pushing. We're going to stay focused. Yeah. And then when I feel like you can respect who I am, where I came from, what it means, right? What I look like in my pajamas, <laughs> then you can call me Charnay. And so that's where I've made my piece. I love that. It's a good reminder that when we're talking about authenticity at work, that you get to decide how much of yourself others deserve to see and hear about and respect, right? Yep. And it doesn't mean we, yep. we get to tell our full stories to everyone, right? That's not, yep. yeah, that's not authenticity. That's that's oversharing. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not everybody deserves to hear your whole story. So being cautious of that, I think, is fair. Well, and figuring out where it's relevant, right? right. Right. Interesting. Wow. I'm loving this, first of all. So thank you for for diving in with me. You know, one of the most frustrating parts of your article was where you shared that even after making this very personal and tough choice, negotiating with your own sense of identity and frankly assimilating to a a white dominant culture that was not going to get your first name right or you'd seen not getting your full first name right, you go with C. Marie. And you write, quote, while I got the job that you'd been interviewing for, the disrespect manifested itself in another way by the mispronunciation of my assimilation name. Apparently, adding the C dot is just too much for folks. I still spend time correcting people who've known me for years. Why? Because of the lack of credence for Black women. So even after making these adaptations, these strategic choices, you know, it's frustrating to hear although not surprising, that you still are being othered by the adaptation that you've made. How do you live with that? How do you sort of reconcile that with with the reputation and the professional, incredible professional career that you've built for yourself? Um, A lot of spin classes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right? I hang out with a lot of people who love me. Yeah. Um, how do I reckon with that? So I then spend my working hours trying to get people to not do it to the next black person. Yeah. Right. Trying to take one for the team where I can, when I can. How I reckon with it mm. is I understand racism and white supremacy and dominant culture. Mm. Right. And so what I try to do and how I reckon with it is to as much energy I can that I have each day in the work hours, try to get people to see it differently yeah. and just kind of rinse and repeat and know that 
My purpose at this moment is to try to get people to actually see me and to have credence for who I am Mm. so that perhaps they'll do it for other black women. Mm. Right. And so that goes back with this wrestling around the piece. And if you take it up a level, right, the whole base of it, even if when I changed it, right. Right. To see Marie and you still want to call me Marie, because that's what you want to do. You don't want to take the extra minute because you see me Mm -hmm. because I'm looking at you and you're like, I don't, you don't fit in the box that I want you to fit in. So I'm going to still put you in this box. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So visually, you still don't fit where I want you to be. Right. Yeah. And so I know that that's a part of it. Right. And then I have to believe in my voice, my knowledge, my power. Mm. Right. And continue to stand up for myself mm-hmm. and correct them. And so that the next time they'll take the minute to be like, how do you pronounce your name? I want to talk about that explicitly because I think so many listeners who will be listening to this. And frankly, when I first read your article, I was like, I was so reliving every time I have botched someone's name, much more often than not a person of color. And I'm like, damn it, that was a total microaggression that you didn't even see for what it was. You know, white guilt just hit me like a wave. But truly, for the predominantly white listenership here, how shall we go about handling, you come across the the roll call I'm thinking of um, Key and Peele's hilarious oh, yeah. classroom roll call. Oh, oh God, that was so fun! Right, that's so applicable here, right? So, but flip the racial dynamics. You're a white person, and you come across a person of color's name or anybody's name, really. But let's say it's a person of color's name here, and you do not know how to navigate it from a reading comprehension and pronunciation standpoint. What do you do? What's the right thing to do there? Uh, write it down, figure out a word that rhymes with it, mm-hmm. study it, say it slower, visualize their face when they tell you that their name is whatever their name is. Right. So you're saying though that it's fair to ask. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, if you don't ask, then how are you going to learn to pronounce it? How are you going to learn to figure out right. how to call them what they want to be called? Yeah. Right. The same thing is when we're talking about gender. Mm-hmm. Right. What gender do you identify with? You just keep practicing it. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Get Rosetta Stone and learn how to <laughs> phonetically say other things. Like yeah. figure out your crap. Yeah. Right. Because it's not their fault that you can't pronounce their name. Mm-hmm. However, what I'd rather you do is I'd rather you ask me three times than to call me something else. I'd rather you ask me three times, is it C. Marie, C. Marie, than call me Marty. Like mm-hmm. My name is not Marty for the love of God. Right, right, yes. Interesting. So, okay, all right. So, in other words, awkward white people listening, do the labor, do the thoughtful, emotional labor of actually asking and admitting that you don't know how to pronounce someone's name in order to get it right, and then remember it, practice it, and get it right from there on out. That's what I'm hearing. Yes, because here's the thing. This is why you don't want to do it, because you feel embarrassed. You feel, you feel, you feel, you feel. Right. Stop. Pause. Yeah, yeah. How does this person want to be called? What do they want? What is their name? What did their parents, whoever, Mm. take the time, right? So it goes back to the value of the person. Right. And we have an inability in this country to value anything other than a white, tall man. Right. And that is not okay. And then we want to recenter how we feel about it. Nobody cares how you feel. (laughs) Learn my name. Right. 
And so it's not like, oh, I'm going to get extra brownie points in my like woke factor if I get this right on the first time. So I'm just going to go for it full speed ahead, not even pause to hear if I was right or wrong. Like that right. is to be avoided. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. The, here's the thing. As we talk about, particularly in our anti-racist work, people are so afraid to fail yeah. and they're going to get it wrong. We're all going to get it wrong. I get it wrong all the time. And this is my, how I make my living. Yeah. I apologize. I pause. I Google. I read a book. Yeah. I figure it out and I keep trying. The thing is, you have to keep trying and you want to acknowledge the value of that person. Right. And the humanity, all of it is about the lack of humanity. One of my favorite books is called Democracy in Black. And it talks about that there is a lack of humanity and value proposition for black people. Right. So just start from there. Which kind of and I want you to expand on that because I'm kind of hearing this value that's very American of individualism. Right. Mm -hmm. We want to be seen for who we are as an individual, not based off of our race, creed, color, whatever. And when that humanity or individualism, that sort of presupposition that you are an individual who's very unique and, and interesting and has their own lived experiences, that that's not extended equally to black folks. Correct. Tell me more about what that looks like in in practical terms, because I'm sure it's basically here at Bust Up, we try to take the very lofty <laughs> philosophical like wormholes that I can fall down into sometimes and make it really tangible for how the hell we can be better on this front. So I'll add that democracy in black to my reading list. But in the meantime, what does it look like? You know, like, what does it look like to do better? You've just onboarded a new member of the team. She's the only young black woman in the whole company. Uh, of, of 50, let's say. And, you know, there might be a few other folks of color, but different ages, different genders. How do we treat this young black woman who's just joined our team in a way that's um, extending you hire humanity? six other black people and three <laughs> other Latin people, two more Asian people, two more South Asian people, mm -hmm. um, some indigenous people. You hire some other people. <laughs> Number one, you think, let me give you, you ask yourself why there's only one person of color yeah. in your office. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's what you do. You self-reflect on what that looks like for your organization, that there's only one person of color. Mm. You read 17 books. You don't treat that person any different than anybody else. Mm. Um, you um, provide mentoring ship and mm -hmm. support for that person. You go through all your policies and procedures that you have at that company through a racial equity lens and figure out where there are bias and barriers to the work that you're doing and you revise them. Yeah. You sign your company up for six to 12 series of racial equity, racial justice uh, workshops. Mm -hmm. You join some book clubs, you broaden your own personal circles, yes. right? To make sure that there's some diversity within your circle so that you can figure out how to bring more diversity to your organization. Because when you actually disrupt bias uh, and bring in more diverse opinions of thought, lived experiences, you actually have more innovation. There's been studies and studies after that. Mm. 
So you have to ask yourself a bunch of questions. You figure out as a company, what is actual shared explicit language that you're going to use. And when I say explicit language, we're not going to shy away from saying black people, African-Americans, Latin people. What is the shared trusted language that we're going to use, right? So that we don't shy away from it. Right. How do we make sure that we do a good assessment of our bias, whether it's affinity bias, confirmation bias, gender bias within the work that we do? Mm. How do we individually look at the entire ecosystem through an equity lens and make changes, right? right? And how do we provide a safe psychological space for that individual, knowing that they're the only person there, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Because one of the big things is particularly, and I'll speak for myself, right? Because I can't speak for all Black people. I cannot. Going into many spaces where I'm the only brown person, Mm -hmm. there's this whole exercise I have to do in my head before I even open my mouth, Mm. before I figure out what I'm going to wait, like all of this extra work we have to do just to get there. Mm. Yeah. Right. So I would say going back to this question you asked me is to be cognizant of that. Right. So how you diagnose a problem is actually calling it a problem. Right. How you define something is coming up with a definition. Mm. Yeah. Right. So you need to define and acknowledge what's happening in your organization, and you have to define and acknowledge historic racism, white supremacy, mm. ableism, right? All of the isms. Mm-hmm. And then purposely with your deliberate brain, not your automatic brain, figure out how to break each of those barriers down. So I've just gave you five years worth of work to do in your organization. I was just going to say, buckle up, y'all, because this is not going to happen overnight, right? I'm reminded of the Obamas who are known to say we have more work to do. And that is a good reminder of that fact. I'm thinking of a a friend and client of ours who recently advocated for the hiring of the second woman at her male-dominated company. And that took like a couple years of solid advocacy to make happen. And that's still not enough, right? Because when you talk about numbers of being the one and only or the two and only, that element of that person's identity becomes so salient in terms of who they are to their colleagues. So what I hear you saying, the sort of byproduct ideally of all of this work is that no one's race should be the preeminent thing that you think of when you think of that person like that's not what they represent they are themselves they she is c marie who has her lived experiences and her studies and her expertise in dni that's not first c marie black person is that right well so here's what i'm saying right so when you think about the color black what is black it's it's absorbing all of the colors this is the way i explain it Mm -hmm. So when I absorb all of the colors, that means I could be many, many, many things, right? And so where I think sometimes white people fall short is they think that this black person is the same as the next black person, is the same as the next black person. And instead of getting to know me, number one, acknowledge that I am black. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am black. Become color conscious, not color blind. Right. I- because I can't hide being black and I don't want to hide being black. Right. Nor should you want to hide the fact that I'm black. Yes. So number one, acknowledge that, yes, I am a black person and I am a person. So get to know me as a black person and as a person. Mm. Acknowledge my humanity and all that's wrapped up in it and acknowledge the systematic oppression that I'm dealing with every single day. 
and acknowledge what is your role on that and how can you combat it every single day, whether it's you looking at how you cannot microaggress me mm. against me, right? By talking about my name or my hair or my shirt or music. Or I don't even know. Right. Like, there's so many microaggressions. I say it's like gnats coming at you. You're just like, oh, here's another one. Here's yeah. another one. Right. So yeah. the short answer, right, is acknowledge. Right. And then I would say study and then do better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge, study, do better. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge, study, do better. Yeah. I love it. I think that's one of the cycles that as much as this year has just knocked us all on our asses, like that call to action has been so loud this year, has been so obvious and so impossible to ignore that this year, this whatever you want to call it, racial reckoning, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, has really called everyone in to say, you can't not do this any longer, right? Learn, do better. That is the work we have of our lifetimes. Uh, C. Marie Taylor, I want to thank you so much for giving us so much to think about and so much to uh, to do better on. And just sharing your experience with us today has been an absolute delight. If folks want to catch up with you, learn more about your incredible work around DNI uh, and nonprofit program evaluation. Uh, tell us more about where they can learn more about you. Oh, so they can look me up on LinkedIn nice. um, at C Marie, I think ETA, nice. uh, or they can find my website, which is equity through action. Awesome. Uh, dot com. Awesome. Uh, or you can email me at C Marie at equity through action.com. Excellent. And we'll put links to all of those in today's show notes. See Marie Taylor. Thank you for stopping by. It's been a delight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. To learn more about Seamary Marie Taylor and all the resources we talked about today, head to bossedup.org slash episode 282. That's bossedup.org slash episode 282. And now it's time for this week's boss move of the week. This one comes in from Christine, who shared in the Courage community this. The first time since I quit my nine to five before Christmas 2019, I have an actual literal day off today, Sunday. So two days past the Fierce Friday today, which is Sunday. Nothing due, nothing late, nothing that can't wait until Monday to start. Very happy I reached a moment in my new career life where I have a moment to breathe. Christine, wow, oof, this sounds hard. This sounds challenging. This sounds intense that Sunday is your one day off since you quit your nine to five before Christmas of last year. Uh, but I suspect that might mean you are on the startup struggle bus, which is so normal. If you've got a side hustle or if you're an entrepreneur or if you are just a very hard worker in a demanding field like campaigns and elections, I know how often it is that we have to work on the weekends and you've got to put in that extra time in that first year, especially. I feel for you. The moral of the story here is that you took the day that you needed. Let's not make it another year before you take your next one, okay? That's my challenge to you. While this is an achievement and a total boss move in terms of setting boundaries, let it not be the last time you do this and let it certainly not be another year before you do it again. 
That's such a great high note to end on. So I'm going to leave it at that. Let's all keep Boston in pursuit of our purpose. And together, as we live up to the motto of the first ever Black Women's Association here in the U.S. from the 1890s, let's lift as we climb. 